Well, welcome Lawrence Juber Thank to Guitar you. Wank. The great reason we get the opportunity to have you here is because of the Malibu Guitar Festival. You want mm -hmm. to tell us when and where and what that's all about? Uh, it's in Malibu, oh. and it's at the end of April. I'm, I forget the exact date. So uh -huh. it's, it's like the Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Uh -huh. And there are various events. Uh, Thursday night is like an opening benefit thing at the uh, Casa Escobar, what used to be the Malibu Inn. Uh -huh. And that's, that's a little more kind of just kind of a presentation and I think, you know, it's not strict concert, more of a jam kind of thing. And then Friday night, I know Albert Lee is playing there and I'm opening for him. Saturday is the main stage, uh, which is I think Robert Randolph, Kenny Wayne Shepherd. I have no idea who else, but you know, they keep adding people. And then on Sunday morning, there's a kind of a Beatle brunch thing with uh, Andy Babiuk who's written the Beatles gear book. And the second version of that just came out, which has some just awesome pictures in it. You know, it's, there's just something for me that just resonates so much when you see like George with the, the Gretsch, you know, from pictures that you've never seen from 1963. And, you know. wow. and yeah, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a kind of a gear junkie anyway, and, and a recording junkie too. So anything that has pictures of amps with mics in front of them, <laughs> you know, it's like, oh yeah, so there's a, you know, there's a KM54 or a 47 or whatever, you know, it's like, just that, that's always exciting. But, you know, I grew up in that, that Beatlemania era. I mean, I started playing guitar in November of 1963, which was really kind of the crest of Beatlemania in England, because we didn't, you know, we had it before the Ed Sullivan show here. Right. So, that was kind of part of my initial excitement about playing guitar was that it was just so cool and and very much happening and even the establishment in england you know which was very old school i mean you turn on the bbc and it's you know it's like the northern dance orchestra and, mm -hmm. you, know, and the, you could, but you did get this very eclectic mix of of anything from light classical to Sinatra to, you know, the Beatles to, you know, uh, just a wide range of popular music. I mean, it was, the Sound of Music was the number one album in England for, you know, years. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, Sgt. Pepper would knock it off for a bit and then Dark Side of the Moon would knock it off for a bit. And then it would come back. <laughs> it just kept coming back. Mm -hmm. But the, you know, growing up in England with all this, this, kind of rock and roll, you know, English rock and roll happening, which in itself was very eclectic because they were absorbing American influences. So, that, you know, the first time I heard Motown songs was by Beatle covers. You know, um, first time I, I heard Muddy Waters or, you know, any of the American blues artists was really through the Rolling Stones. So that was all a great entree to that style of music for me. But I was also, as a teenager, listening to... Well, the first jazz guitar player I listened to was Howard Roberts. Because uh -huh. a band, local band leader was a trumpet player and kind of adopted me musically. And I was 13 and going out and playing weddings and stuff and just kind of learning how to fake it on the bandstand. And he gave me an album of the Candoli Brothers, who were, you know, like L.A. studio yeah, players. Pete who were, and Pete and Candy yeah. Candoli. And, and Howard Roberts was the guitar player. And, I, mm. you know, I'd slow the record down to 16 RPM, and, you know, try and figure it out. And then, then I discovered Django and then Barney Castle and Joe Pass. And it kind of, you know, that end of things also evolved. But I was studying classical guitar in school. I decided very early on I wanted to be a studio musician. Uh -huh. When I realized that I was making money, you know, I started making money playing guitar when I was, you know, from this, doing these these gigs and then top 40 gigs and stuff and it was like well this is better than babysitting and working at the supermarket and washing my neighbor's car so once i discovered that you know the way you know the the kind of the cool thing to do was be a studio player because i didn't you know i wasn't really that enamored of the spotlight i was kind of a shy teenager and i'd had bands and we'd play it you know and rent like the local pub hall to you know do a, a dance or something but it wasn't really where i lived i you know it was just playing guitar and because i learned to sight read very quickly it was okay i can read i understand styles of music and i loved the way records were put together so all of that kind of conspired to put me in that direction mm -hmm. and i 
went to college and studied music and I played with the National Youth Jazz Orchestra and then out of that I just kind of got dropped into studio work which was an amazing thing. But I mean you would you were playing gigs like like yeah. we all did and playing in bands and all that. I played kind in of bands and, and I but I did so many different things I go and play like some fingerstyle thing in a folk club because I loved ragtime. Mm -hmm. And I loved that kind of self-sufficiency of the folk guitar players and then but I also, for a while, I had a duo with an alto sax player, and we had no repertoire. We just would like go and improvise for a, a gig. Uh -huh. <laughs> so I was exploring that, and, and but also, you know, playing with. I had one band I was in where the keyboard player was this fiendish B three player, and we would do all the Keith Emerson stuff, you know. And before Emerson Lake and Palmer, he had a band called The Nice. And they would do like kind of rocked out versions of Bach and stuff. And I'd, there was no guitar player, so I would just add guitar parts to this stuff. So I got really used to kind of adding guitar to other stuff, right. know, making up parts, but which I is mean, kind of the skill of what a studio musician Yeah, right, yeah, I know, but I mean, you even knew, I mean, it's funny because like the, that a studio musician was even kind of in your, you were aware of it because, you know, I mean, you know how it is when you're, a, when I was a kid, I was playing with all these different things, but the thought of, a guy kind of behind the scenes just playing all that stuff versus, I mean, I was in clubs hearing guys do it. Right. I, I'd hear the bands playing their music. You know, I was pretty much only into jazz when mm -hmm. I was young. But, you know, so, I mean, it's interesting that the idea of a studio guitar player was even on your radar at that point to me is very, very just observant. Well, I think, know? well, part of it, I think, was because the, the musicians that I was gigging with for them, that was kind of the brass ring was to get into studio uh -huh. work. So it was kind of like, you know, my kind of elder peers were kind of offering that as a, as a goal. Uh -huh. and, but it also, it really kind of tied in with the way that I was listening to music because I would listen to, you know, we had Radio Luxembourg was really the kind of pop station which was broadcast from, from Europe. And at night you could hear all the American Top 40 stuff, which you wouldn't necessarily hear on the BBC. And I would listen to records and just, okay, well, that's what the bass is doing. And, you know, and, and identify the bass part as being a discrete entity and then relate that to maybe listening to some Beethoven or some Bach and, and trying to just understand how the parts fit together and recognize, I think more than anything else, it was recognizing patterns. And, and, and it's, it was curious because I have no, I didn't know until very recently that I had any musicians in my family. So I didn't know where the music came from. I then subsequently discovered that I have a third cousin named Alan Cohen, who's a, a sax player in England who, and an arranger who did all the arrangements for Charlie Watts' big band. And, mm -hmm. uh, but even he was a little bit of an, an anomaly in the family, but we did have a lot of tailors. And, you know, that's pattern recognition again. It's like just that ability to recognize a pattern and figure out what it, how it fits into the greater whole. And that really relates also to what I do as a guitar player in terms of using altered tunings and looking for those kind of symmetries and the patterns in that and how that relates to the overall expression of music. Mm -hmm. But uh, at the time, I mean, I didn't have any kind of intellectual analysis of this. I was just, yeah, I want to play guitar. Right. <laughs> I want to make money doing it. And, yeah. and, oh, here's a cool piece of music. How does that go? You know? uh -huh. Wow. And so was, was, were you kind of hoping to get over to America even in the early days, or was it you were very... Yeah, uh, L.A. was kind of like a, a kind of a, a really kind of, you know, this shining studio scene, especially in the 70s, you know, when I started listening to you know, Larry Carlton and Lee Rittner. And, mm -hmm. you know, and, but being a studio player and then kind of looking to L.A. as being a, a really kind of like that was something to aspire to because London was cool. I mean, I was, you know, I was working seven days a week doing three, four sessions a day. I mean, it was still a lot of studio work in those mm -hmm. days. And it was, of prior to drum machines. So we had great drummers and great bass players. And I got to work with, you know, the best people there. And, and I was pretty, you know, I was pretty green to begin with. I mean, one of the first albums I played on was a Cleo Lane record with, you know, and her husband, John Dankworth, was this great alto sax yeah. player, and, and she was a great jazz singer. And George Martin was producing it. Mm -hmm. And we were doing a tune that was in B major. And I, you know, I was toughing it out without a capo. 
you know, I figured, well, I can do this, you know, and, and you know, it's not till years later that I figured out how some, you could really do some cool things in B major if you really, you know, kind of start playing around with it. But then it was like, you know, I could have just put a capo on and played it in A shapes. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, I was just so, so intent on being kind of macho about it, you know, but of course, as a you know, studio player, you learn all the shortcuts and you learn all the tricks and you don't want to waste your time trying to deal with, you know, something that's too muscular when you can use open strings and get more cool stuff going on. Mm -hmm. so, but, you know, that was very early days. I learned my lessons pretty fast. <laughs> but it was a, a lot of the stuff that I did as a studio player was not necessarily rock and roll. I mean, I worked some, with great singers like Charles Aznavour. I did an album with Rosemary Clooney that was really cool, you know, working with somebody of that kind of stature. Because I never discriminated in terms of musical style, it, as mm -hmm. long as it was good music. It didn't have to be rock. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of pop stuff and kind of almost semi-classical. I did a record with John Williams, the classical guitar player, mm -hmm. that was one of his pop albums, uh, mm. where I was playing a Les Paul and he was playing his classical. And he walks in and he looks at my Les Paul and he says, oh, I have one of those. <laughs> it's not what you expect to hear from yeah, really. one of the world's great classical guitar players. Right. But, you know, that's, but again, it kind of that eclecticism that you get in England. And when you finally came to L.A., how old were you? Well, the first time I came to L.A. was actually, I think, in 76, when I was like 24. And I spent a couple of months here. Met Tim May, and we've been oh, friends yeah. ever since. Yeah. And also met a few, other, a few other studio musicians and got taken around to um, a few sessions. But I, the, I was getting calls to go back to London because there was work to do, and, and so I, I didn't stay because it was just going. It would have taken me too long to really establish myself. And so then you joined a few bands, right? Well, I was in bands on and off. I mean, I was always playing in bands, but it wasn't the focus of what I was doing until I got asked to join Wings, uh -huh. and that just kind of like shut out the whole studio scene. Right. It's like, okay, am I going to play with Paul McCartney? Which how could I turn that down? Or continue to be a studio musician. And I had to think about it. You know, when Paul said, well, you know, you want to join the band, it was like a nanosecond worth right. of, you know. But of course, I wasn't going to say no. Mm -hmm. I, how could you? you know. Well, you know. Well, I, I suppose you could. Yeah. I mean, you know. Uh, well, I mean, the, my predecessors had, you know, varying degrees of, of uh, longevity, you know, working with Paul. I mean, Danny Sywell, who is, you know, a good friend, you know, kind of quit right before they went to record the band on the run album because it just was not for his, for his perspective it just wasn't a healthy gig you know mostly because paul didn't have a lot of money at that time you know all his beetle money was tied up in lawsuits by the time i joined the band everything had kind of opened up and uh, it was a great experience I, I look at it as my education you know my my masters from mccartney university mm -hmm. just to work with somebody of that stature and that kind of experience. And, and I learned a lot, not only in terms of the kind of the rock consciousness end of things, but also just in terms of making records from the production side rather than just from the music stand side, you know, getting into the control room and watching engineers like Jeff Emmerich and, you know, how they're mixing things and how things got mic'd and, you know, just that, that was all good stuff that helped me out when I started, you know, getting into production and composing and having my own studio and making my own Can you remember records. any uh, like aha moments, like something you thought it was one way and just being your mind blown that there's something right in front of you was, was so different than you perceived it to be? Well, one of my favorite moments, not, and this is kind of from the songwriting end, not the recording end, but we were sitting, I was sitting with Paul with a couple of acoustic guitars and all of a sudden he starts playing Michelle. Oh, he played that. Yeah, he played an F7 yeah. sharp nine. Yeah. He didn't play. Right. Didn't play a minor seven. Right. And you listen, you know, you listen to it, and the backing vocals. Uh, you know, you've got, you've got that you, melodic minor there, thing going on where you can have the major and minor third in the right. same chord. And I just thought, well, how hip is that? You know. And then I started kind of looking at the fact that. Right. Even though it hits C major there, it's really in C minor. Right. Right. You know, and just 
the coolness of that. The, it's, so, it's such a simple thing, but it's exactly the kind of twist that he will put into something that makes it sound fresh and different. Mm -hmm. Even though he's kind of modeling the songwriting on, you know, kind of a Tim Pan Alley kind of old school approach. There was always that, those little twists, and that was one that, in particular, and you know, just moments like, oh, you know, we we were doing uh, doing some kind of strummed rhythm thing, and you know, he says you've got to, you know, just play this very even eighth note, right. because so many of the accents get picked up, you know, by the drums, or you know, you don't have to do all these rakes and, and right. flourishes and stuff, and really, you know, understanding how to lock into the groove. Uh -huh. I got a bass lesson from him too. One of the tunes, uh, a tune called Love Awake that we, we recorded, I had played bass on the demo and he liked my bass part. So, you know, I, I expected him to do it on the, the final version. He said, no, you do it. And he, he kind of kne kneeled down on the floor and gave me picking tips. Oh. You know, and I, I think a, an interesting perspective on that is that there are two bass players that I've worked with who started off as guitar players and approached the bass with a more guitaristic consciousness, one being Paul, the other being Carol Kay. Uh -huh. And they both have a very similar way of, of articulating very melodic bass lines uh -huh. that are not your typical bass player. Right. Lines. So there's lots of little things like that. And just the whole process, the whole mechanism of, of you know, what Joni Mitchell referred to as the, as the star-making machinery behind the popular song. Uh -huh. just, I'd never dealt with publicists and, you know, kind of record release parties and stuff like that in that particular way. I mean, uh -huh. most of the studio work, I'd play on a record and then forget about it, and I'd never hear anything more about Until it. Until you heard it on the radio, maybe. On the radio, or, or, I mean, even stuff. I played on a Charles Aznavour album in Paris in 1977 which I had no idea, but was the number one album in France for all of 1978. I found that out on my Wikipedia page. <laughs> so who the yeah. hell knows? You know? yeah. Or I played with the Alan Parsons Project on, the first, on their first album, Tales of Mystery and Imagination, on one, one track. It was a session at Abbey Road with a string orchestra and an acoustic guitar, some mandolins and a harpsichord. And I had no idea what it was for. Because at Abbey Road, you have this long staircase going up to the control room and you didn't go up there. Uh -huh. First time I ever went up there was when I was in Wings. Uh -huh. And I read this in a magazine like 25 years later, Alan Parsons is talking about recording this album and he had me play guitar on it and I had no idea. Oh, you Nobody didn't even know me. who the leader of the day was. was? No, I mean, it was just, you know, it was like the fixer, the contractor, David Katz, who I did a lot of work for, would call up and say, okay, yeah, you know, be at Abbey Road at 7 o'clock on Tuesday. But so. the music didn't say who the artist was? Didn't say was? who it was, no. Wow. Because, you know, I do a lot of sessions over at Capitol and stuff, and it's, yeah, it's what it always says. You yeah, know. well, here, you know, typically yeah. it would, but there it didn't always say what it was. You didn't always yeah. know. And I was too busy running from one session to the other, and we didn't right. have cartridge then. I mean, I, I had a deluxe reverb and a, a briefcase full of pedals and, you know, a Les Paul, a Strat, a six-string acoustic, a 12-string acoustic, and a classical, and perhaps a high strum. Uh -huh. and, and then there was this whole period of, like, carrying around a, a guitar synthesizer. I had oh, one, yeah. like, one of the first Roland ones, mm -hmm. which was nothing was programmable. You had to program everything. And then, then I traded that in for an ARP avatar, which I, they must have sold at least three of those in, in a year, and I got one of them. <laughs> I, that was, the, that was the, uh, the piece of gear that put the ARP out of business. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just... But that was kind of pre-MIDI and pre-everything. It was just, uh -huh. okay, well, we need this. You know, like, I remember getting the first electric mistress flanger in London because I'd, um, I'd seen somebody using it on a session in L.A. Uh -huh. And I was like, okay, how do I get one of those? Yeah. And it was Jay Graydon was using it. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And so after, you know, this, this incredible range of, you know, playing electric and 12-string and doing mm -hmm. all these things, you know, and being, you know, obviously the Wings gig was a lot of lead guitar. Mm -hmm. When was the moment you said, okay, for me, this acoustic steel string is going to be, this is the project I want to devote myself to? I mean, I'd always had an ambition in that area. You know, I got, to, I got to New York in January of 81 and then moved to L.A. in October of that year. And in New York, I got straight into doing session work, like jingles and stuff, because after Wings Folded, I had that kind of like, on my resume, so it you know, opened some doors. And I got involved in some band projects that never quite got off the ground. 
turned down a few offers to join other bands. It was just not where I wanted to live. And I, uh, I met Hope, who became my wife in L.A. Uh, no, in New York, but she was from L.A. So I moved to L.A. in October of 81 and then started getting into doing some studio work. And then by 82, I was already kind of getting pretty active, but mostly TV, some movies and, and records also, uh, a lot of pop records. And I started raising a family, so I had little kids. And, you know, I'd sit and, like, play pretty little fingerstyle pieces for the kids and then, you know, gradually started accumulating a repertoire of tunes and arrangements. And 1990, I was actually at KPCC oh. on folk scene playing with James Lee Stanley, who's a singer-songwriter, old friend of mine, and, and came to me and said... And I was playing, kind of noodling around, and he said, you know, I, I'm just starting a record label. Why don't you make an album of stuff like that? So I did. So, uh, so it sort of happened to you as much as you wanting to do it. Yeah, it, it was a kind of convergence of it. And then um, I started doing some gigs, and you know, I used to play it at my place in Santa Monica. Sure. You know. And I got involved with Taylor Guitars, who were a very small company then. I mean, they were making 10 guitars a day, and I started doing clinics for them, and then start, kept putting out albums. The first album got some radio airplay, and even on the wave back then when they were playing mm -hmm. you know, solo acoustic stuff. And I actually made it onto like, some of the you know, new adult contemporary charts with, with this album. And then that prompted a second album, and then I just kept going. And finally, you know, within, I would say, within about four or five years, I was getting on magazine covers and getting attention, and then I started exploring altered tunings, and it just kind of kept growing, and it hasn't stopped. And I've done 23 albums and been on more magazine covers and have a signature guitar with Martin and signature oh. strings and play clubs, festivals, all kinds of stuff, internationally. I mean, I play in Europe, I play in China... Japan, Korea. It's funny. I mean, everybody I know who's, who's of our generation, at least, and I think it's probably true even now for the younger kids. Music, we find it, we love it, we, we're some part of it, we get into it, you mm -hmm. know, that inspires us to become part mm -hmm. of it. And then so much of life just becomes taking advantage of the opportunities from where you happen to grow up, from the right. people you happen to be mentored by. Mm -hmm to uh, opportunities that come and choices you make along your life. And I, I'm sure, like, even I had the, I think, mistaken impression that you had just said, you know, enough of this electric guitar. I don't <laughs> want to carry amplifiers anymore. I'm just going to, you know, pull out an acoustic guitar and do this. And obviously, with, with your talent and awareness and hard work, you could have gone in any direction you wanted and, and you made choices, yet at the same time, much of it is a part of just being on the scene and being alive and staying in touch with what happens to us as humans. I think that part of it for me was that after Wings, during Wings, I discovered I could compose. So it wasn't just composing music for guitar. I started getting hired to write music for TV and movies and so I got into production, producing records, doing some commercial songwriting too, but not a lot of that. It just wasn't my kind of natural thing to get into. So there were these parallel tracks. I was doing a lot of studio work. I was composing. I was playing for my own satisfaction, playing acoustic guitar. And drawing on that, that original inspiration of seeing folk guitar players, people like Martin Carthy, great English folkie in, you know, in England, and playing with a, a, you know, a Martin double-art-sized guitar and no PA to you know, a pub full of 100 people, you know, everybody you know, quaffing pints of bitter and right. all of that. You know. and, and there was something, I thought, quite magical about that that was quite different from the, you know, the electric guitar side of things. But I never gave up electric guitar. I just kind of left it you know, for the studio work so that you know, the cartridge company could deliver the, the amplifiers and the trunks ah, for so the Ah, so I guitars. was right. There was a little bit of that. <laughs> oh, yeah, the, the Schlepp factor definitely, <laughs> you know, definitely is, is an issue. I mean, even now it's like, okay, I've got like a, the mini pedal board. You know, I've got a kind of like tuner, compressor, um, overdrive, 
delay, chorus, and reverb all on a, a tiny little pedal board with these mini pedals. And if I'm going out and playing anything electric on the road, I'll, you know, I'll take that or something even smaller just because I don't want to deal with too much weight. You know, I travel with one acoustic guitar. I carry a capo, but I don't use a capo on right. stage because it's just not part of my whole thing. I'll change tunings and, right. and all of that. But, but, you know, travel light. You know, the, the merchandise is the heavyweight, you know. And, right. then and, and like, that's, as you know, quickly going away. I mean, it's... it's well, but it doesn't go away at live concerts. Right. Actually, here's a, an interesting thing I discovered today because I, I recorded a Christmas album in December last December with Michael Joachim on drums and Dominic Genova on bass, you know, and we've done stuff together over the years. And I, I like doing ensemble stuff because I can improvise more when uh -huh. there's somebody else laying down the bass note and right. I'm not also having to catch that right. in my solo thing. So we recorded in December because I always said if I was going to do a second Christmas album, I'd done one years ago as a solo album, that I would do it in December because that's when all those tunes are under my fingers. So right. you know, we did some gigs and went into Capitol, recorded there. And then a couple of weeks ago, I went back in and had Al Schmidt mix it. And I wasn't going to do CDs, because it's like the conventional wisdom is nobody buys CDs, except it shows. Right. And how many Christmas shows are you going to do? To, you oh, know, I see. Yeah. You know, and it's like to get a decent deal on CD manufacture, you've got to manufacture at least a thousand of them. Yeah. Well, you know, that means a lot of CDs, boxes of CDs sitting in closets for, you know. For well, I like to say all of my CDs are million sellers. <laughs> I have a million in the cellar. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I get through them pretty quick because I sell a lot at concerts. I mean, well, show merchandise yeah. is an important thing. But I found out today that the number one category for CD sales is holiday music. Wow. Yeah. Very interesting. The number one category for streaming is Latin music, which is the smallest of CD sales. But CDs still sell in the holiday market. I mean, I sell lots at gigs, like yeah, you say. Exactly. But, you know, yeah. and, and, of course, the demographic of people who listen to me are not the most quick adapting to modern technology. Right. But I do have the, the weight schlepping issue and the storage issue. Right. And, of course, that whole margins issue of... To make it worth buying, you mm -hmm. have to buy enough to basically, right. I could, you know, make a house out of them or something, yeah. and eventually they're gone, and then it freaks you out. You, you go to the gig, and there are none left, and you have to order them real quick, so yeah. that's going to cost you extra for right. sure. <laughs> and but what I discovered, and it took me years, I've, I've been with a record label. I'm just starting my own label now, but, but Solid Air Records, who have released the majority of my stuff, for years, I said, you've got to get away from jewel boxes. You have to do, like, eco-wallets. Or the digipacks, at you least. Know, or yeah. something that, to reduce the weight. And, you know, the fact that, you, you know, I'll rip the, the cellophane off of a, a CD to sign something and not realize that it's been crushed in transit. Right. And now I've got a gash the, in my the, finger yeah, and I've got to go back and play plastic. set, set oh, two. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's, you know, it's like it's the kind of weird, you know, rules of the road that you have to pay attention to is look at the CD before you open it up just to make sure that it didn't get destroyed. But the eco wallets are great because you can get like two, three times the amount in the same space with less weight. Mm -hmm. um, so that makes life easier. Scott Henderson, you know, mm -hmm. who's on the podcast here, he does this thing where he carries them on spindles and he oh, just okay. brings, he brings a paper folder. Right. So there's something he can sign and put right. it in. But so now he can stuff it into a suitcase right. and, you know, have huge amounts. And there, of course, it's a, it's a safer way to transport them because they're yeah. on a plastic spindle, right. you know, that's secured, which I find to be quite ingenious. Yeah, it's pretty ingenious. But the reality is that in the commercial world, you still got to have CDs. Oh, you know, you he's still got, got those. Package I mean, for his too, trips yeah. to particularly Europe, yeah. you know, he's got a take a bunch of stuff with him because you know people are going to want to sign it and yeah. you know yeah I mean I'm sure he makes the digipacks or the whatever the right. jewel cases for the well the other way to do it is just to put the files on thumb drives right too. And, um, you know and but you see I'm into the high resolution stuff too I did a, a, a DVD about oh, more than 10 years ago now for AIX records which was a 96k 24-bit DVD audio yeah. Which won awards for, you know, I got a Demi Award. I a said, Demi? what the hell's a Demi Award? Well, Consumer Electronics Association do these awards for recordings that are really good for demonstrating expensive equipment. Oh. 
So. Well, we were actually involved. Uh, I just did a duo recording for this guy who now it was, what was it, 198 or something? Uh, 192. I mean, these guys are going yeah. into this whole, soup, they call it HD, I think, now yeah. or something, audio, which is yeah. really, you know. Well, I mean, I, actually, it's an interesting thing because I'm right now in master, we're about to master my Christmas album and I have the mixes at, at 96K and I have them at 192. Ah, and we have to make a decision as to which one we like the sound of better. Because the 192s were recorded directly to a Tascam recorder. Uh -huh. Whereas the 96K ones came straight out of the console and back into Pro Tools. Uh -huh. So we're dealing with another, a different kind of A to D conversion. And the converters and the clocking all make a difference. Sure. You know, I mean, my, my best-selling album, LJ Plays the Beatles, was recorded directly to DAT. Mm -hmm. And right after it came out, I got an email from somebody at Quantigy who were making, you know, had taken over Ampex tapes, wanting to know which one of their analog tapes I'd used. Wow. But, but the secret of that was that I borrowed a pair of Neve mic pre's, 1073 mic pre's, that were just so spectacular that everything just sounded beautiful through them. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it's like every aspect of the signal path makes a difference because you can be recording at 192 and if your mic pre's aren't great or... The humidity is wrong that day. Yeah. You know, things don't always go exactly as you you expect. But but the idea of being able to capture more dimension in the music, you know, because analog just sounds so rich, and digital, you know, doesn't always do that. I mean, you really have to play games with CDs. Oh, I, to I get totally them to agree, sound and I've I've often wondered about that. You know, because obviously, in certain ways, the digital format has the opportunity to capture more, you know, in some ways. What, what more it's different, or less. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I way prefer analog. I mean, but I grew up listening to analog. Right. I grew up, my first, all my first 20 years of playing was all analog. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I, I often wonder how much of my preferences are prejudices versus honest, objective preferences. I times. think the secret is... As long as it goes through some analog process somewhere in the signal path, and it doesn't always stay in the box, that you get that extra glue that just makes things sound and feel better. I've got tapes, stuff that was recorded on a Revox that I transferred 441 to uh -huh. DAT, and they still sound great, even though it was low resolution, 16-bit, Stuff, but the fact that they were recorded to analog tape to begin with, and not even the best of analog machines, but you know, a very serviceable Revox, still sounds good. And I think that, that that's part of it. And mastering engineers now are like rolling stuff off to tape before they go I back know, into I digital that's, just that's, that's, to keep that, yeah. that quality going. Yeah. yeah. As long as you get a good batch of and tape. Then, and, which and is it, right. And then there's guys who are, you know, who are these geniuses or whatever, these computer engineer guys who are trying to write plugins that replicate what going to tape does to the music, you know, and yeah. through analysis and all this yeah, stuff. Yeah, and sometimes they work really well and others don't. Yeah, and right. it's, but I mean, it's funny because when you find out exactly what they've analyzed and what they're adding, it's often things like noise, noise. and distortion. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, and I mean, yeah. here we are going... Well, give me some noise and distortion, well, but we want some high, yeah. you know, some high definition audio. It's like, yeah. well, maybe, what are we doing well, it's, here? But it's the, it's the non-linear aspect of things. Mm -hmm. that, you know, because a digital is, is, is filtered. I mean, it's, it, you know, putting the music through a, a sieve, a finer and finer sieve as you go up in sample right. rate. But, but you're still, you're losing stuff. And of course, you know, you go to an MP3 and so much of the feeling of the music has disappeared. And I think it's part of, I think that, that until we get beyond this kind of digital degradation of music, we can't reclaim the true value of the musical experience in the way that, that we grew up with, with the analog world. You yeah. know, it's funny because the best vinyl sales I've ever had were, were students at Stanford. When I did a thing up there, they bought a whole bunch of vinyl because mm -hmm. they're hip to it. Whereas our generation tended to get rid of all their vinyl. Right, right, for and the schlep really, factor. You know, yeah. After a few moves right, exactly. in storage, yeah, you know what I mean? And maybe a divorce. Of vinyl, yeah. I don't want to get yeah. personal about this, but maybe a divorce, you know? Yeah. But, um, 
Anyway, we should get back to the Malibu Festival. Sure. And, and, and just talk about one of the things that is, that is engaging me in this festival, beyond the playing aspect of it, is the, that it's advocacy for music, for guitar and education, for music education. And that's become a very important thing for me. In so far as, from, from a number of different perspectives, one, growing up as a guitarist and not a keyboard player, and going and studying legit music as a guitarist, and not studying like in a conservatory environment, but actually doing musicology and, and, and music theory and, and harmony counterpoint and all that stuff. And having to constantly be advocating for the guitar as being an alternative to the piano. Because you don't have to be a piano player to be a, a true musician. And, and some of the great composers, Berlioz was a lousy piano player, but it was a guitar player. Schubert played guitar. You know, in the 19th century, well, the, it's, the piano became such a dominant factor in classical music that when you get into music education, it's still very piano-driven, still very keyboard-driven. And I really believe that the guitar is equal to that. And historically, the guitar has an enormous history that is not acknowledged in the classical canon, in, within the classical world. You, you crack open a book on the history of, of classical music, like uh, Donald J. Grout's History of Western Music, which is kind of a standard text, or it was when I was in college. Guitar is like a footnote. I think it's one footnote. And yet you go in through music history in 19th century, you had guitar mania. The guitar was incredibly popular. And there's there's boatloads of music written for guitar, written guitar and piano duets, guitar and flute, guitar in, in ensemble situations. And, and at that time, I mean, in Beethoven's era, the piano was not the industrial piano that it became. It was, it was a quieter instrument with fewer notes and fewer strings and, and didn't have an iron frame and didn't have that, that massive attack that you get from a, a, a modern or even a, you know, a pre-modern piano. Right. And the guitars that were being played, you know, the, if you're familiar at all with the, the early Martins that were based on Stauffer, who was a v maker in Vienna, that you see the headstock that looks like a Stratocaster headstock, but on an early 19th century guitar. That model of guitar was the signature model of a guitarist named Legnani, L-E-G-N-A-N-I, who was a contemporary of Paganini's, who was, wrote these fiendishly difficult pieces. They, they were all these shredders. Right. I mean, literally shredding guitar players. Legnani, uh, um, Zanni de Ferranti, who was like, Berlioz said, he rocks you. Mm -hmm. First rock guitar player. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there was a, a kid, like a 10-year-old named Rigondi, who blew everybody else away. And then there was this Johann Kasper Mertz, who was a Hungarian, Czech, kind of in that area. You know, the borders were constantly changing. Who wrote gorgeous guitar music, you know, kind of like Schumann would be on the piano. Mertz is on the guitar. And these, they never made it into the Segovia perspective, because right. Segovia was so focused on Spanish music. But these were great guitar players, and they played instruments. This Legnani model has a floating fingerboard, short scale like 23-inch kind of scale, short-scale, high-tension gut strings. They sound more like arch tops than classical mm -hmm. guitars. Mm -hmm. And with a very, very strong focus on, on bringing out the melody, that the melody really sings on those instruments. And they arranged pop music, which was mostly opera, right. operatic stuff. And they, they wrote their own compositions, and, and they're incredible virtuoso players. And... We don't acknowledge those in, in music history, but they were the first generation of touring fingerstyle guitar virtuosos. And I think that the, to recognize that they were important in, mm -hmm. in the, certainly in the development of the guitar, and then the transition into America and how much in the second half of the 19th century guitar was incredibly popular. There was a BMG movement, banjo, mandolin, guitar. And you know, we have people like William Foden, who was the wizard of the guitar, who wrote marches, mazurkas, polkas, and pieces that you can see the roots of folk picking in all of this. The alternate bass comes right. from that. And how it all got absorbed into, especially in the South, you know, South and the Mason-Dixon line, in Southern culture, and really ended up being part of the folk and blues tradition. And you can follow a lot of this and stuff. Part of that is the schlep factor. 
Yeah, because the guitar is portable. It's portable. It's capable of complete harmonic state. It's an orchestra. It's, it's a, an orchestra. It's like an orchestra in your lap. And you can orchestrate music. With, and right. that's part of what I do as a player and using alter tunings like Dagad is to find ways to orchestrate, git orchestrate what right. I do. And so I, I kind of, like, I consider myself a guitarologist at uh -huh. this point because I'm really into the history of the instrument and its application and how you can apply it in an educational context so that kids that maybe, you know, are exposed to it in elementary school can maybe start to learn in middle school and then by the time they get to high school they could maybe be playing you know with the jazz band or turn around and then play a continuo part if the orchestra is playing Vivaldi I mean, mm -hmm. you don't have to have a harpsichord or a piano playing you know playing the continuo part in Baroque music. Well you know the, I'm, I'm on staff at USC where we have actually a studio jazz guitar program that's actually kind of probably in many ways a knee-jerk reaction to what you're talking about, how particularly in the jazz world, how 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 piano-centric it is, and how much right. music of guitar belongs and evolved and is a part of that. So, in our program, we interact with all the other programs, but we're very mm -hmm. much into that. You know, so with me, you're definitely preaching the choir. And my playing itself, I played piano as a kid. That mm -hmm. my first instrument was classical piano, right. and much of my career has been sort of the replacement for a piano in the jazz, in a small mm -hmm. jazz band, like a right. guy who can comp and can right. handle and, you know, I can handle the music of modern jazz mm -hmm. by playing, I can be the accompanist for the horn player and yet I'm a right. good soloist when it comes around to me and the orchestrator of the harmony. Mm -hmm. And and so in many ways, we are talking about exactly We're the same thing. We're talking about the same thing. The problem is that in the educational system, the classical world is very, very separate from all of that. Right. And you get classical guitar players, four years of conservatory training, and this, this happens especially in Europe, can't string a chord sequence together, right. don't know how to improvise. Right. And it's just not right, especially well, because the, the, the founding fathers of classical guitar, the people I'm talking about, including right. Giuliani, for example, right. who played standing up, right. Fernando Saw, who didn't use fingernails. Right. And Saw was actually a very accomplished composer, way beyond his guitar playing. Right. Um, the, these players, they improvised. Improvisation sure. was normal it was, before it was, the classical canon. It was not just guitars was, that improvised. No, I mean, everybody Bach did. improvised. Yeah. Mozart they improvised. They owned it. So, and, and you, funny you say that, because two of my students this semester are actually, you know, in the classical department, mm -hmm. which is USC's classical department is world famous. Right. It's brilliant players over there but they're taking lessons with me just because they want to learn to improvise and, right. and because much of the modern classical music that they're being called on to play does now require improvisation there's there's right. I, I would say that what you're saying is particularly timely in the fact that you're addressing something that's a movement now with inside the classical guitar world as well. Uh, but I think that it's this area between classical guitar and pop music. And, and you know, jazz is, at least jazz, is entrenched in the academic framework. Mm -hmm. Pop music is just starting to get recognized. I'm going to be playing and doing a presentation at the International Society of Music Educators in Glasgow at the end of July. I'm hoping I'll run into to Steve Foreman when I'm there, because uh -huh. he's teaching there. Uh -huh. And they'd never had pop music before. This is the first year ever that they're actually dealing with popular music because they're now starting to recognize that there's a musicology of pop music and that from a career point of view that music students really need to know. They need to know what, Beatles, what the Beatles represent. They need to know how, you know, how somebody like Burt Bacharach can, you know, was able to, is able to span you know, going from studying with Nadia, Nadia Boulanger and yet writing pop songs that you could still throw in bars of 5-4 and, you know, an A7 sharp 9 over a B-flat chord, uh -huh. as he does in Alfie, right. you know. Uh, it's like you can find people that are really kind of recognizing that there is a, there's something needs to be filled in. But the, the structure of the academic world, like at U, UCLA, where they have the music department, they have the musicology department and the ethnomusicology department, and they don't really kind of connect. 
Yeah. They're completely separate. And that's apparently they're starting to connect now. But from my perspective, I, this was all stuff that I self-taught myself, was having to negotiate my way through an academic program without being anything more than, a, than the most rudimentary of piano players, but being able to do all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. So I've been getting involved with the LA Unified School District and, and just generally kind of finding... You're just really doing some due diligence and figuring out what contribution I can make simply as an advocate for, mm -hmm. for, um, for promoting more, of, more guitar in the classroom well, Amen to that. Yeah. I would say thank you for yeah. every, everybody who assaults and insults that instrument. <laughs> and you know, we it's, thank you. And the thing is that where it relates to me as a musician is like, for example, working in Daggett tuning. Mm -hmm. You know, the meta information of music doesn't change. And on a piano, you don't have to think about where that C, middle C is. It's always on the same key. Of course, you know, Irving Berlin, okay, you change. Yeah, you're right. He had the gear shift. He had the gear shift. But, <laughs> but, but, but in the real world, that's where it is. Now, right. on a guitar, you know, it could be in four or five different places. Five different places. And if you change now tuning... Now you change tuning, it's in... Yeah. yeah now it's, it's in yeah. other locations, too. Right. And, but how will those things relate? So, for example, you know, in Daggad tuning, you play a C9 chord, whereas in standard tuning, you have to stack it um, without, the th without the third in because the fingering, um, I mean, just becomes silly if you're trying to do it, you know, root. Or if you're third, trying to do it like yeah, straight, root, straight Like a piano friends, player would root third, fifth, minus seven, nine. Right. Well, you can do it like there with Dad right? So it's so weird to me to see your hand in that position and hear what just came out of your guitar. Yeah. I got to tell you, I'm getting a little dizzy. Yeah, I don't, just got to be careful not it. to yeah, watch. Yeah, you know what watch. I mean? Yeah, because yeah, I mean, I look at videos of myself and I say, wow, is that what it looks like? Yeah, but, you know, it does look me, strange. But, it's, but that meta information is still doesn't change. And so, you know, finding ways of voicing things and, you know, uh, let's say... Cry me a river. Right. Yeah. Like the D seven sharp nine augmented. Right. You know, these kind of things. Yeah. You know. And and of course. It's a right. sus tuning, so yeah. you know, just one finger across gives you the sus four chord. Right. And and just the texture of things, and being able to get down to an E flat major seven. Right. That sounds strange to me too. You know, just that chord coming out of the guitar. And you know, adjacent scale tones. And then if I go down to C G D G A D. Right. And then I've got C, the low G, C. Right. And then it gets all noir. Yeah. You know? So well, that's really cool. So it's using, you know, extending the range of the guitar and using my musical imagination to be able to create arrangements and compositions and repertoire that will engage an audience from a different sonic perspective. Uh -huh. And still, you know, I still do plenty of stuff in standard tuning, but it's just that the auto-tuning stuff kind of gives me just that, that changed perspective as right. well. As well. Um, so, but, but one thing I also, also wanted to mention, talking about improvisation, I am, I'm, I've recorded an album, which I'm actually just fi finishing up mixing on, with a, a piano player named William Goldstein, who's a film composer. and He does what he calls instant composition. And we improvised an album. Uh -huh. Guitar and piano, just sat down, hit record, and played. You know, sometimes five minutes, six, seven, eight minutes. You know, so room to edit stuff down. We got stuff that's like Bach, that's... Stravinsky meets Ravel, Aaron Copeland, you know, folky uh -huh. kind of stuff. I mean, it's, how do you categorize this stuff? It's borderline classical, but there's folk elements. There's no jazz 
to speak of. We did one blues where I'm playing um, lap like dobro, but he's not. That's not his thing. He he is you know a very articulate kind of legit composer, but with pop sensibility too, and it's a really interesting collection of tunes and kind of quite a revelation. But what's interesting is that you know the 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 way the counterpoint is developing where we're playing off of each other. Uh, but not necessarily being able to, he couldn't hear me very well because the piano is much louder than right, the guitar. So you and this piano bleed all over with, the guitar. You were playing track. with him. I was playing with him, you know, so I'm kind of following, but, and there's times when I'll lead it and he'll pick up a phrase. But, but to find, and this goes back to what I was talking about earlier as far as playing, you know, working out guitar parts in bands where, you know, the main, for music where there may not have been a guitar part, that, that just, finding the way of weaving into the texture, finding a pattern that complements another pattern. But all of this, I mean, I think that the thing that I've learned most from McCartney and then beyond is how to be an entertainer, too, and how to keep an audience engaged, not strictly from the, the finger-watching kind of, you know, uh, changes-navigating kind yeah, of jazz perspective, are... yeah, but from the... from. A, a real kind of just general audience perspective and being able to channel an emotional perspective into the music to engage people who maybe have not been engaged in music in that same way. And, and I seem to have found kind of a niche in that way too. So keep them entertained, keep the fingers moving. And, and keep teaching the new ones, too. I really, mm -hmm. I really admire your perspective on everything. Well, thanks. And I want to thank you for being here. It's great to get to know you. Well, you and too. And all yeah. the luck at the festival yeah. and, and beyond. And, and before that, I'm actually going to be doing um, John Pisano's night. Oh, you are? Um, the last Tuesday in the month. It's right before the festival. Okay. Let me check my... Uh, okay. Well, check to my... those of you out there who don't know what that is, John Pisano has a, a event, an event called... Guitar Night, L.A. Jazz Guitar Night. It happens every Tuesday. It's happened for 19 yeah. years now, and it's a continuation of the Guitar Night that Joe Pass used to run mm -hmm. at Dante's. Mm -hmm. And both Lawrence and I get a chance to play there every yeah. six, four to six months, yeah. I guess. It's, it's a Viva it's a Cantina great hang. It's a Viva yeah. Cantina in Burbank. Tuesday, April 26th. Tuesday, April 26th, which yeah. is the week of the Which Malibu is the week Festival. of the Malibu Guitar Festival, which is the Thursday the 28th uh, through um, Sunday, May 1st. And I suggest that all of you, just like Lawrence himself did, go to Wikipedia and learn more about Lawrence. Because that's oh, what Lawrence website. had to do. Yeah. Um, go to my website, lawrencehuber.com. <laughs> and Lawrence is spelled with a U for those of you that are completely living in a cave. L-A-U. L-A-U-R-E-N-C-E-J-U-B-E-R. I tweet at OM28LJ. That might be a little too much information. Yeah, um, I, you can like me on Facebook, but we can't be friends. Well, you know, you've run it's out of okay, man. Friend room. Most if if we if you and I became friends, you probably want to unfriend me anyway. So <laughs> I really don't think I could handle that. So um, I'll just stay. And I do have a mailing list that's on my website that people can uh, click on that and get on the mailing list. Well, I suggest everybody do that. Yeah. And uh, once again, thank you. Nice to meet you in this intimate context rather than a gig. So well, thanks. all the best, man. Well, thank you very much.